It's Aspen Ideas to Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. In this time of social unrest and physical separation, how can we be more connected? How can we build community? Mia Birdsong, an activist and writer, says we must show up for one another to provide strength, support, and accountability. How do we, in times of crisis, make sure that more of us are okay? Um, And if we can't rely on our systems of government and the institutions that should be taking care of us, then we have to rely on each other. Today, Birdsong talks about her book, How We Show Up. Aspen Ideas To Go brings you compelling conversations from the Aspen Institute, which drives change through dialogue, leadership, and action to help solve our greatest challenges. Today's discussion is from Aspen Ideas Now, an online conversation series from the Institute that highlights remarkable stories. The good life in America is often equated with the American dream. Maybe you have a well-paying job, nuclear family, and upward mobility. Still, many of us feel isolated and unhappy. Author Mia Birdsong says it's because we've forgotten about community, which is a key element that helped us make societal progress in the first place. The ever-present injustices built around race, class, gender, values, and beliefs isn't what separates us. Instead, it's denial of our interdependence and a need for belonging. Birdsong, who's been called a family and community visionary, speaks with Courtney Martin. Martin, who's also an author, co-founded the Solutions Journalism Network. Here's Courtney Martin. Welcome, Mia Birdsong, my dear friend and um, mentor and brilliant visionary thinker. I'm so excited to have this conversation with you. Me too. Um, so we're, we're talking in part, I mean, you've done so much incredible work that I would love to get to in our hour together, but um, in part we're talking because you have a new book out uh, called How We Show Up, Reclaiming Family, Friendship, and Community. Can you tell us a little bit about the spark for writing that book and what the experience was like for you? You know, I didn't, I'm not somebody who had like a burning idea that I had to get out and then wrote an actual book and then tried to shop it around. (laughs) It's not what I did. Um, I was actually approached by an editor after an event that you had me do as part of your last book. Um, the new better off. And we met up and she just asked me if I had a book in me. And I was like, I have like 12 books in me. Um, And she just, you know, she did this thing that um, I just find so valuable in a lot of my relationships actually, which is um, asking me smart questions and then just really letting me think out loud uh, about what it is I'm trying to articulate. Um, in many ways, I think I'm more of an orator than I am a writer. So being able to write out loud is, is part of how I um, figure out what I need to put on the page. Mm-hmm. And in the process of, um, I often say I didn't write this book, I made the book because so much of um, the time that was spent, you know, quote unquote, writing was actually talking or gardening or doing other things that helped me solidify my thoughts. Um, the, the talking part was really helpful. I have like a handful of friends who I would just, you know, who were very patient and would listen to me kind of just go on and, and think through things that I was trying to understand about what I wanted to put in the book. 
So the book by now, if you're listening, you probably have figured out is about community um, and is about collectivity and about kind of reimagining and healing and, and creating beautiful lives through community. Um, when you conceived of this out loud with your editor and then, you know, with lots of amazing people along the way, you could have had no idea when it would be published that we would be in these particular times, um, which are just, you know, pretty profoundly about reimagining community. Um, what has that been like to have the book come out? I mean, have you been thinking I could have written this a thousand other ways or have you been thinking like it says exactly what it needs to say for these pandemic and kind of racial reckoning times that we're in? Yeah, I mean, first of all, it's very strange to have a book come out in the middle of, of all of this. And, you know, part of me is definitely grateful that I didn't write a book about like house plants or stamp collecting or something that's like very irrelevant. Um, and I mean, I, I th I've thought about this. I'm like, oh, if I'd, if I'd, you know, if it was like a couple months later and I'd known that we were going to specifically be like physically distanced from each other, maybe I would think about it differently. Or if I'd known that there was going to be another cycle of white violence, maybe I would have talked about, you know, um, abolition in a different way. But ultimately, um, I think I would have, you know, I feel like the the stories that um, I tell and the wisdom that I collected feels like it is relevant now. I felt, felt like it was relevant when I was writing it. And I have no doubt that they'll be relevant, you know, when, when the pandemic is over. Um, because the, you know, the stuff that the, the pandemic has kind of, and, and the white violence has kind of made starkly clear to us is not new stuff. It's stuff that existed before. Um, and we're just now, I think there's a, there's a kind of pulling back of, of, um, you know, the curtain a little more dramatically. And I think more of us are more deeply aware of both kind of how inept our medical system is, um, how, um, how much our government doesn't, isn't structured hasn't structured our economy in a way that actually works for people. Um, how much, you know, white supremacy um, is deeply embedded in, you know, not just our systems of policing and punishment, but in our economy and our health system um, and in just like all aspects of American life. Um, and part of what we need is obviously deep uh, systemic change and I think that they're like both kind of alongside that and in some, and in some ways kind of in between the, you know, during that while, while we're filling in, the, we need to fill in the gaps. And I think that part of what um, I learned from this book is really like, how do we do that? How do we, how do we in times of crisis um, that are both kind of long-term crises, but also these acute ones, how do we make sure that more of us are okay? Um, and if we can't rely on our systems of government and the institutions that should be taking care of us, then we have to rely on each other. And you're actually making me rethink my question because you couldn't have foreseen this particular manifestation of what these times would be like. But I do feel like you're one of my friends who I'm like, oh, Mia totally called all of this. Like, <laughs> you know, you've, you've talked about various kinds of apocalypse things that might happen. And obviously yes. we've been talking about like racial reckoning and you know, white supremacy for a long time. So yeah. I, 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 the book is written as if 
you, you know, you did know that something of this kind was down the pike, you know? So anyway, it's interesting for me to kind of revise my own question there. Um, <laughs> your subtitle is reclaiming family, friendship, and community. So I thought let's take each one of those separately and just dive a little bit. So starting with family, um, you've spent a lot of your career thinking about family um, at the Family Independence Initiative and then at Family Story, which you co-founded, um, and I'm sure in a million other ways. Uh, talk about a little bit about what America, sort of like speaking in terms of kind of mainstream media mm -hmm. or what sort of the prototypical picture we have in America of family. Talk about why it's, it's so wrong and um, what the, the real danger of that is. Yeah, so we kind of have this hierarchy of family. And um, with the insular, heteronormative, nuclear family at the top, um, and in kind of its, you know, oldest formation, which, by the way, is not very old, that family is definitely straight and is definitely white and is middle class, like solidly middle class in the way that we used to define middle class, which is like, you know, um, one person's income could buy a home and um, pay for kids to go to college and save for retirement and all that stuff. Which um, sounds preposterous <laughs> right now, but I, I know that is what we used to think. Yeah. Um, and that model of family is you know, people often refer to it as a traditional nuclear family. And I'm like, it's conventional, but it is definitely not a tradition. Um, it really only has only existed in the last like century or so. Um, and it's really antithetical to who we are as human beings. And I mean that in that the, the insular nuclear family is kind of um, a, a version of the, the kind of quintessential self-made man, but in family form. Um, and both of those forms of individualism are about, you know, pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps. They're very much about like, you know, kind of conquering what your destiny and doing it yourself um, and build a sense of pride in the idea that a singular human um, could kind of forge a life for themselves and be this particular version of happy and successful that is kind of defined by our American dream narrative. Um, and that is all just a bunch of nonsense. <laughs> um, we, first of all, even the people who we kind of have, who have been held up as successful in that standard, like certainly did not get there by themselves. Um, first and foremost, there's some woman who's like, you know, doing unpaid labor to make sure that that person can eat and like has a home that they can like live in that's not disgusting, right? Um, but outside of that, like there are all of these, you know, certainly for white men, there's, there's a whole bunch of um, systems and um, that have been, that have been, their, their way has been smoothed. Um, and there's all kinds of things kind of like pushing them forward. But the other thing about that kind of form of, of individualism is that like human beings, we're not, we're not independent. Um, we are like in our DNA, our brains, like we are wired for connection. We are deeply interdependent and um, talking about, you know, kind of having goals of independence in that way really just covers up the ways in which we need to rely on other people. But it also really prevents us from, I think, the kind of happiness and aversion. <clears throat> it also really prevents us from um, accessing a, 
I think what is a more human and deeper kind of happiness and a version of success that's really about our collective success. Um, that version of success is, is uh, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't allow for the kind of care and love and sense of belonging um, that I think human beings fundamentally want. Um, and then I think that when we think about family, um, that part of the damage that that hierarchy does is that everyone who does not achieve that particular thing is um, either because they don't want it or because they tried and failed, right? Like every other family form is looked at as, as somehow like some kind of failure. And I think for folks who are, you know, if you're a woman and you have no interest in having children um, or having a partner, you often get asked questions about like, you know, loneliness or when are you going to have children or um, aren't you going to regret like not having, you know, created your life in a particular way. And I think um, that's just a really damaging and narrow way to look at what a life can be. And I think the idea of having uh, multiple, like that each of us gets to choose for ourselves what it is we truly want in this life and who we want to spend that life with and what we want those relationships to look like. That to me feels like um, a much more uh, beautiful and and kind of freeing idea of, of being a person than this idea that we have this very specific narrow idea of like what family is and what success is. Yeah. And you've, you've so beautifully attributed some of that like liberatory way of thinking about family to queer communities who have historically like, you know, been doing that masterfully out of necessity, but, but have so much to teach those of us who grew up in, you know, that sort of cookie cutter mentality. Can you talk a little bit about yeah, what's so totally. about that? So, you know, and I think I will, I will say that I think that, um, like black queer women um, are always at the forefront of any progress um, that we make in America, right? If I think about, you know, it's June right now and we're, we're like in the middle of uh, Pride Month and, you know, the history of, of Pride is kind of obscured by rainbow flags and, um, and I don't know what else. Um, but Pride was, you know, Pride was originally a riot. Like the the Stonewall was a riot and it was started by um, trans women of color. And that history is, I think, less obscure than it, you know, was a decade ago, but it's still not really um, part of how we think of um, the LGBTQ movement in this, in this country, um, which often still looks like a very heteronormative way of, of being a person and being um, in relationship with other people. So um, there are these folks who have been excluded to varying degrees from what America's idea of what happiness and success look like. Um, and those folks are, you know, it's black people, it's unhoused people, it's sex workers, um, it's queer folks. So anybody who has been on kind of forced to live on a margin, um, I think is both, yeah, like learned how to create um, really inclusive, loving, caring, um, like systems gap filling ways of being in family and community with each other because they've had to. I also think that for so many of the folks who I talked to for this book, there was when they realized that, you know, there was some point they realized that the American dream wasn't for them. 
So they were like, oh, <laughs> let me do something else then. Like, what else could we create outside of that thing? Like, so there was this kind of mutual rejection of this idea of what it meant to be happy and successful. And I think that the, the folks who I talked to are, have maintained a, just a close, like they're closer to their own humanity. They're closer to their own understanding of who we are as human beings and what's possible. They're closer to their own ancestral memory of how we used to live. Um, you know, because all of us came from, you know, at some point down the line, like came from people who lived communally, who lived in tribes, who worked together to, um, you know, care for children, to make sure there was food, to provide shelter, to do all of those things. Um, and they lived that way because that's what makes sense for human beings. Um, you know, we're not, we're pack animals. And so I feel like the folks who I talked to for this book have, have maintained some kind of connection or found a re, you know, rediscovered a connection to that way of, of living and have reinvented it for, you know, now for being able to live now. And that has helped people, you know, to some degree mitigate their experiences of oppression from white supremacy and patriarchy and capitalism. Yeah. The, the, expertise that you surface in the book is just so beautiful. Um, and I feel like so much of it is experiential. You know, you did read a lot and, you know, consult, like, what are the PhDs saying about things, but you were more intrigued by, like, how are people turning their own lives into art and into, you know, composing their lives, as anthropologist Mary Catherine Bateson says it, in this way that's, like, it is itself the expertise and the work of art and the the like thing that they have crafted that we can learn from. I just loved yeah. getting to know them and getting to like, feel like I was kind of peeking into their lives. Yeah. I mean, you know, in many ways, this book is about my own journey to figure out how to do family and friendship and community in ways that feel more aligned with what I want. And I didn't think I was going to find that out by reading, you know, what a PhD has studied as an anthropologist about family and friendship. Um, I knew that the, the experts that I wanted to, to talk to were the people who actually knew what they're doing um, and had been practicing, um, you know, their lives in this way for however long. And, you know, I don't think that like in many ways we don't, we don't tend to um, think of people's lived experiences as a sort of um, expertise, particularly if we're talking about people who have experienced marginalization, um, you know, and I mean, there are, there are like longstanding um, stereotypes about black families and queer families as being broken or deviant in some way. Um, when in fact, th those, those folks are very clearly the experts that I want to be listening to and following. Um, and it just seems important to, to reframe uh, our understanding of what expertise is and to know that if we want to, yeah, if we want to live lives where we're, we're expanding our ideas of what family and friendship are and we're deepening um, our connections to people in community, that we have to actually look at what the people who know how to do that are doing. Can you, since you brought up your own journey, I, I wondered if you could say a little bit about like someone might look at your family and say, it's a pretty traditional family, right? You're married to a cis man, you're like have two kids. Um, one of the things I love about the book and, and the sensibility you bring is that it's like, it's not about a demographic thing. It's not about like, if you're married, you can't have a radical 
you know, reimagining of what your, your family and your friends and your community looks like. It's like, whatever the trappings are, I mean, get the right trappings for you. Like if it's not marriage, don't get married. But if it's, if marriage appeals to you for whatever reason, do that. But it's about how you actually operate and what your expectations and your rituals and your practices and, and, you know, how you make joy within whatever that structure is. So can you talk a little bit about like, why it's not about like, if there was a listener listening, who's like, well, I'm a white guy who's married to a white woman and we have two kids. So we're, this book is not about us. It's like, it's not about you, but it like you could within your marriage. I mean, it's really for all of us. You know, I, I, uh, I mean, part of, part of the kind of tension for me that I was feeling in my life was that the kind of more, and you know, they're rabbit ears here, right? Successful that I became um, under this particular idea of success, um, the harder it was actually to maintain the kinds of close family and friendship that I really wanted. So part of it was like, well, how do I, like asking myself, like, well, what do I need to give up of this kind of, um, conventional life that I have. And part of it was also just like digging under and examining what the life was and realizing that like, yes, I am a cis woman married to a cis man. Like, you know, we own our house. We have two biological children. We have, you know, now I have two dogs cause we got a COVID dog. So we have two dogs. Um, and you know, and like, you know, can pay for things like tutors and gym memberships. Um, and that, but if I examine kind of how we got here, right, n- neither me or my husband comes from um, conventional nuclear families. I was raised by a single mom. He was raised by hippies, like on a, you know, on a bunch of land, like with a bunch of other people running around naked in the foothills. And, um, you know, and my mom created family for us with her friends and his parents um, you know, he had multiple people raising him and had his own, you know, there were his siblings. He is, he's one of seven. And, and then there were just like all kinds of other people. So we both have these experiences of, um, you know, the village um, as like how you grow up. So I feel like I ex- like underneath the kind of veneer of our nuclear family is that, you know, we have lots and lots of chosen family and extended family who help us raise our kids. And I think for all of us, you know, even if you're a white guy in a, in a conventional nuclear family, like, and I would say, especially if you're a guy, um, there's so much, uh, there's so many boundaries to be kind of like examined and so many um, places of intimacy to be explored with other people. Um, in our lives that we don't, that, you know, that the stories we have about what marriage is and the stories we have about what friendship is don't really tell us. I loved about the book was some of the ways in which you looked closely at asking for help or even just realizing people are not going to ask for help and we have to, you know, be a little nosy and sort of like show up and take the risk of offering things to people, very specific things. Can you talk a little bit about what you learned about asking for and receiving help? Yeah. And I will say, I think that, that what I, I'm so thankful that I learned those things before all of this happened, because um, it has really played out for me, like since we had to start sheltering in place and being physically distanced from each other. So yeah, so America is like, Americans are allergic to asking for help. Um, We see, we see help as something that you, you get when you are 
like in desperation, right? Like that it is actually truly a need um, that you are incapable of doing something by yourself or you truly can't like get by without somebody helping you. Um, and, and we see it as weakness and we see it as shameful, right? Like I'm making some generalizations, but that's generally how our culture thinks about it. And part of what I saw, and this was a through line in, in so many of the sections of the book was that, um, that help like and support are actually like the, like that we can generously give but we also can generously receive right that generosity is not just about what you're providing but it's also about like allowing um people to be in your life and support you so i stopped thinking of help as a thing that you get when you like need it and more a thing that like creates um ease in your life so that was one thing that was really important. And then I think the other thing was that um, that accepting support is, well, the two other things, accepting support is also a way in which like the generous part of that is that it is a gift to the people who are offering it, right? Um, one of the women who I quote in the book, Amaretta Morris, talks about um, there being this kind of uh, divine cycle of giving and receiving. And that when you, she's talking about like, if you don't ask for the help you need, you're interrupting that cycle. And I think that also if you don't, you don't receive help or you don't say yes when it's offered. Um, and it's, you know, I mean, don't say yes if you don't want it, but like if, if people are offering it and it'd be useful, um, that there is a gift that you're providing that person um, by accepting it. And then I think the other thing <laughs> was that when we offer help, right? I think we do a lot of um, let me know if you need anything, call me if you want something. And what that does is it requires that the person who may need support, that they one, figure out something that they might need. And then two, they have to kind of like do the calculus of trying to decide whether or not you're somebody who could provide that thing. And then three, they actually have to then reach out to you and, and make the request. And I think that if someone truly needs some support, that, that is, that's a lot of burden on them. So I've been thinking about like what it means to make each other, like to be each other's business and like to get a little nosy and to um, recognize that crossing some of the boundaries that we may assume of each other is not about taking somebody's agency away, but it's actually about like, how do we be in each other's lives a little more deeply? Um, so many of the folks who I talked to, like I saw them either practice this or they talked to me about offering something really specific. So like I had, um, you know, like the week after um, George Floyd was murdered, um, a white friend of mine, Allie, uh, texted me and she's like, can I make your family dinner? Right. And I like, I don't need, I didn't need her to make us dinner. Like I could manage that. Um, but I knew she was offering and I, and I knew that I could receive it as something that would relieve a little bit of burden. Um, and in a time when I was doing a lot of holding space for other black folks and for, you know, both my grief and their grief, she was like, I know Mia is doing that. So let me offer something that, um, creates a little ease in her life and is like, you know, like a thing then she doesn't have to think about. Mm -hmm. So, um, so I said, yes. And it was, you know, I knew, and I also knew that like, it made her feel, um, purposeful, right. It made, it was restorative in some way for her to be able to contribute to supporting me in that way because she loves me. Um, and that kind of, uh, generous giving and receiving was, is just a really powerful thing right now for all of us. 
One other thing I'm hearing that I feel like is so different than sort of a traditional white American conditioning around this is that it's not about, I mean, sometimes someone dies or, you know, there's a true emergency where it's like, get the food train going. And like, we need to like show up for these people in a deep, big way. But what you're really talking about a lot is just like nourishment and ease Mm -hmm. and like these like kind of lighter touch ways of just like showing up for each other that are not like someone had a baby or someone died. Exactly. Therefore we cook a meal. It's exactly. like having a little bit more just like sense of making our, our people's lives easier, whether it is yeah. because of a George Floyd, you know, news that, you know, your friends like emotionally doing a lot of labor or it's just, you know, you know, it's been a hard week for them for what reason or, you know, I love that sense of just like, how do you nourish the people around you when you have some extra bandwidth? Exactly. And I think that if we do it in ways that feel um, restorative for us, right, it's not depleting. Um, I think that's part of it too, is like really understand, like, I don't, you know, I don't offer things that I feel like are going to like drain me in a way that I'm going to then resent or like kind of feel crappy about, um, from like, you know, there, there are times when I have to do this, right. Do that. Like, I feel like, you know, our children are, they eat three times a day. (laughs) Like I'm not super stoked about every time I have to cook my kids a meal. Um, but when it comes to, you know, the adults in my life, um, it feels really good to find the ways in which um, being supportive and offering of myself feels restorative. And the other thing is that it, it allows us to know each other better, right? Um, there's, a, there's a kind of intimacy that is forged when you are in each other's lives in that way. And that feels really powerful right now too, especially since we are um, craving, right? Um, intimacy, right? We can't touch each other, but I feel like uh, being able to to get a little closer to each other in that way is just feels very life-giving right now when we're so, um, when we're feeling the the lack of like physical touch and not being able to like gather with our friends in the way that we used to be able to. Thanks for listening to Aspen Ideas To Go. For the first time, the Aspen Ideas Festival is being held online and it's free. Catch discussions featuring Bill Gates, Keisha Lance Bottoms, Mitt Romney, Alicia Garza, and many others. The conversations are streaming online at 7 p.m. Eastern through July 2nd. Go to aspenideas.org to sign up for the festival. Again, that's aspenideas.org. Let's return to our featured conversation. Here's Courtney Martin. We've talked a little bit about friendship just inherently to what what we're saying here, but I'd love you to talk even more specifically about um, friendship and the ways in which, um, you know, it's so clear friendship is like deeply underestimated in our culture writ large in terms of how important it is and how like defining it is of our lives. Like that, you know, we always think about when we're on our deathbed, we'll think about our kids and our whatever. And it's like, I think people really think about their friends too. Like Mm. this is a defining thing who you choose to be friends with and how you do friendship. Um, What did you learn in the book about like doing friendship more radically and, or I just love to hear how your way of being friends with people has changed over the years. Like now that you're in your forties, do you befriend in a different way? I mean, there's so much to say about friendship. And I think that it is, it is such a, um, 
there's such a spectrum, right, of how we can be friends with each other. And I, and, you know, when I think about kind of how friendship is um, juxtaposed with romantic sexual partnerships, um, yeah, friendships kind of get short shrift there. Um, one, there's this assumption that like happiness requires you have, you know, a spouse or a partner. And I think about just how, I mean, my friendships with, you know, with you, um, with the group of folks that we're friends with, with the black women in my life are so deeply like life-giving. I mean, the things that I feel like I have learned and the ways that I've grown and the ways in which I am held um, by my friendships is something that no individual, you know, partner could ever provide. Um, you know, and I think there are ways in which like my, you know, my husband, I'm married to a white man, like, um, there's just stuff that he can't give me that black women do. Um, so, so my relationships with, with black women are, um, just incredibly important parts of my life. And I think that like part of the way that, that I kind of, um, part of the way that I feel like my thinking about and my practice of friendship has evolved is not this kind of diminishing of my marriage, but this really, this elevation of my friendships. Mm. Um, and beautifully put that just feels, uh, like in the hierarchy of relationship, it feels really important to be like, yes, this relationship I have with this man who I deeply love and, um, you know, making a life with in many ways and raising children with and, um, you know, having great sex with and all these things like that is a very important relationship in my life and serves a deep purpose. Um, but I also have all of these other incredibly important circles of friendship and individual friendships in my life. And um, part of it for me has been about like looking at the ways and what we assume about friendship and what we assume about commitment. Um, and again, kind of just examining those, the kind of box that we put around friendship and, and thinking about each of my friendships as these singular relationships that have their own culture and their own, you know, expectations and their own ways of communicating and actually having those conversations um, with the like close friends that I have so that we can, you know, in, in the way that you have a commitment with a partner, like you can have a commitment with a friend and you can actually examine and think about like, what do you want to, like, what do you want to be able to expect from each other? And um, what are the roles that you all are fulfilling in each other's lives? And have just even having those conversations um, creates like new pathways for knowing each other and new pathways for intimacy that feel um, incredibly powerful. And just, you know, I think if I think about what I thought friendship was in my twenties um, and kind of what I think of it now in my mid forties, like it is just um, so much richer and deeper. And um, I just, I mean, I, I feel like my life, the, the kind of color of my life is, is so much broader um, because of the way that I can get, I get to be friends with people. I wanted to ask you about, you know, I live in a co-housing community, which is a very sort of formal kind of community. We have, you know, meetings and we have, meals and we have, you know, it's a very structured thing. And I was really interested, especially when you talked about friendship and sort of intentionality around it, like having those kinds of conversations about how, how do we show up for each other? What do we need from each other? Sort of these, like the kind of relation, the kind of conversations one typically expects you'd have with a romantic partner. Like, are we exclusive? Are we, you know, um, <laughs> I loved how you 
talked about having those conversations with friend friends. And it also made me think about, I don't know exactly like what the question is. It's like about intentionality versus formality. Like mm-hmm. it doesn't have to be super formal, like the co-housing I was mentioning, like right, it's right. very formal and that's one way to do things. And it's helpful because it's like, it's very clear and there's not a lot of, you know, sort of confusion about who's showing up when or how, but it, the intentionally doesn't have to be formal like that. It's more about just like have the conversation. Do you know what I mean? Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. And I think that, you know, there's a, there's a little bit of, of um, kind of courage that it requires, right? If you've never had those conversations with your friends, because you're asking them to, you're asking both of you to like articulate what you mean to each other. Um, and we don't, that's not a space that we typically have in, um, in our friendships where we kind of like, we talk about like, well, this is what this friendship means to me and kind of what I want from it. And, and can you tell me the same things for you? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that, again, it just create, I mean, part of it is about creating clarity. Um, I think that, you know, I think we often have uh, romantic relationships and, and where one person feels like they're giving more than the other. And I think we have friendships like that too. And if we can clarify kind of what it is we're available for and what we can expect from each other, then I think there will be less hurt feelings um, and resentment. So there's that piece. And then there's really just like the co-exploration of what the, what's possible in the relationship. You know, I have um, a friendship um, with a man who, you know, on like, I think if you like read our bios, you'd be a little confounded as to why we're friends. Um, but what we've discovered kind of over the course of our friendship is that we are really similar in terms of like, you know, what our, what our, what our relationship with our parents was like, and kind of some of the, you know, we're both sevens <laughs> and when we look at Enneagram stuff, um, there are all these ways in which like who we fundamentally, like how we were fundamentally created as people, um, are really similar. And we both have a deep commitment to, um, our personal growth and kind of like, you know, dealing with our, childhood like traumas and stuff like that and um we have we're really like each other's partner in that work because we really understand kind of how the other person is wired um and that relationship um has a kind of intimacy that really does not uh fit inside of what we typically think of as uh like a friendship box um but because we've had all these conversations about what the relationship is, like we know what to expect from each other. And I just feel like having that, having that friendship has created, I mean, a tremendous amount of personal growth for both of us. Um, mm. And it's just nice having this person who I feel like gets me um, in the way that I get me. And like, you know, we can like call each other on our crap because, because <laughs> we know mm. how the other person is wired. Um, and that kind of intimacy is just really powerful. And that kind of intimacy requires such maturity. Like that's part of what I'm hearing you say, like the the way in which you and that friend, as an example, have like been clear about your expectations of each other. um, And the way you show up at various moments in the book um, with other friends being like, it's, it's mature to be like, what do you need Mm. from me? And how, what, how can I be clear about the ways in which I can or can't show up for you? Like that's grown ass shit, right? Like that's like, (laughs) you have to be a grown up to do that. Um, So how do you, how do you develop those muscles? Like for people who are listening, who feel kind of like skittish and sort of like, whoa, that sounds so hard. I mean, he definitely thinks of our relationship as one of the most adult relationships um, that he has. And 
you know, like chapter two of my book is really about like yourself. Um, I think for me, it's been a lot of like therapy. Um, And in particular, like a kind of approach to my own knowing of myself that's really about like, how do I be, how can I be like deeply aware of, of me? Um, And like, you know, if I'm like activated around something, like, what is that about? Um, You know, the, the boundaries work that I feel like I've done like in therapy and then therefore in my relationships kind of just like blew open what I thought boundaries were about. Um, You know, I thought boundaries were like about like rejecting (laughs) some, a uh, thing that somebody was asking of you or a way that they wanted you to be. And I think like fundamentally I understood boundaries as just like really understanding um, what is yours, like what's your stuff and like what's somebody else's so that when I'm in relationship, and of course these things just like show up in your relationships. So when I'm in relationship with somebody and, you know, I feel a way about something they said or did um, part of my responsibility is to examine like, why I'm feeling that way and to see what of it is really about like my own stuff and like some story that I'm telling about like, you know, what's going on. Um, And then what if it is theirs, right? And that I can't be responsible for what's theirs. I can only be responsible for what's mine. Um, And if I'm in like, you know, a close relationship with that person, I can talk to them about what's theirs, but it really is like, we need to, we need to each kind of take responsibility for what's ours, but then also support each other in working through our stuff. That's what that all feels like. And I think that, you know, that's when it comes to, um, like, that's a kind of accountability, right? Like that is, that is um, us deciding to be, be as close to, you know, kind of the, the best version of ourselves that we can be and helping the other person be held accountable to that version of themselves. And I think that's another reason why having those conversations in um, your relationships is important because it's not just about like, how do we want to be in relationship with each other, but who do I want to be in the world? Like, who do I want to be as a human being? And that I can't actually do that work by myself. Right. Some of it I can, you know, do in my head and, and do in therapy or whatever. But like, really, like when it comes down to it, we, we are in this world with all of these other people. And part of what I know I want for my relationships is people who, you know, people who will support me and celebrate me and um, show up for me, but like also people who will remind me, right, like who I'm capable of being and will help me hold myself accountable to being the best version of myself. Mm. I love that. And it's, it's why personal growth, you know, if we call it that, like, again, getting back to the sort of white supremacist, like, I don't, I don't even know if it's traditional because it's a pretty modern invention, like (laughs) therapy and all that stuff. But just this idea that like, you're working on yourself so you can like perfect who you are so you can be even more successful. You know, I'm thinking of like all these people are like thinking about efficiency all the time and like, how do you like manage your emotions so you can like be more effective at right. work. And logical, right. Yeah. And like parent in a way that's like the perfect parenting strategy for getting like the most amazing children. Like <laughs> that, that's also like inwardly focused. And, yeah. and so I think sometimes people think like, well, if I'm going to be community minded, I can't work on myself. Like I've just think about everybody else. And it's a, a deep misunderstanding of like working on yourself so that you can be in community 
more beautifully and clearly and joyfully. And so those people can hold you accountable to who you want to be, but not from a perspective of like perfecting something or like achieving right. some particular thing, just like being yourself more fully in the world. Exactly. And I, and again, like that, that requires a level of intimacy that I think we don't often um, look for or try to cultivate in our friendships. Um, and that just feels so important to me. And I feel like all of that is really connected to the criminal legal system, <laughs> um, which is because we don't, you know, right now we have a, a system of punishment and coercion and um, a system that thinks of people as disposable. Um, and part of what people want when they experience harm is they want repair they want healing and they want accountability. And our current criminal legal system doesn't provide any of those things. So, you know, it, one of the chapters in the book is about safety. I'm gonna pause because my chickens are being really, really loud. <laughs> I don't know if you all can hear it. <laughs> I love it. Can you hear them? I, I could hear it a little bit, but I couldn't really hear what it was. So don't worry about it too much. So part of what people want when they experience harm is they want healing and they want repair and they want accountability. And our criminal legal system doesn't provide any of those things. Um, the, one of the chapters in the book is about safety. And I talked with um, a bunch of folks who do community accountability work and who do transformative justice work and who do abolition work. And um, so much of what I learned was about like how community, like being in relationship with other people is actually necessary to address harm. Um, Mia Mingus, who is a transformative justice practitioner, is one of the people I interview for the book. And the stuff that she has taught me about a kind of accountability just like blows me away. Um, one of the things that she said to me is that if you're not actively cultivating like accountable relationships, then you're actively cultivating an unaccountable life. And part of what she means is that when we, ex like we all experience harm and we all perpetrate harm. So when we experience harm, one of the things we need is people in our lives who can help us heal from it and process it. Um, but when we, when we perpetrate harm, we also need people in our lives who like won't let us like get away with making excuses for it and who will help us hold ourselves accountable for whatever the harm is and figure out um, a ways to make repair if that's what the person who we've harmed wants or is interested in. And I feel like, you know, I, like I have lots of people who I feel like if something happens to me, like I can go and like cry on their shoulder and vent and they will help me process things and like feel um, better. But the idea that I would also have a group of people who might be different people to go to like when I mess up and like mm. when I'm like a jerk or I like cause harm in some way, like when I basically transgress um, my own uh, like integrity or hurt somebody, that there's a group of people that I would be like, oh, I need to go and talk to these people and figure out like what's the work I need to do here to like hold myself accountable to this. And I just like, that just blew me away as like, I was like, so that radical. is not a thing that was on my radar at all. And part of it is because all, we all want to think of ourselves as good people, right? We all want to, we all, we're like, there. we are very binary when we think about harm and um, experiencing harm and perpetrating harm. But when we do that, right, we, we deny ourselves 
um, the space to evolve from the harm that we cause. And I feel like there's a way in which we, um, we basically reject like the idea of ourselves as redeemable because we don't, we refuse to kind of accept that um, if we do good things that we can also do bad things. And I think that's why we are so attached to um, narratives of good and bad. And it's why we're so attached to systems of punishment um, because we really want to distance ourselves um, and set ourselves apart from people we see doing harm in the world. Um, And I think until we all accept that, we all need to hold ourselves accountable for harm we do. And we all need healing when we experience harm. Um, we're going to, we're not going to like, we're going to have systems that perpetuate violence and, um, and harm. So that was the other piece that I feel like is, is part of why it's important to have like really good friends um, is because they don't, it's not the people who are just going to like, help you like allow you to make excuses when you screw up or say that something awful you did was okay they are really good they're gonna have the like be adult enough to care about you and love you and not throw you away when you mess up but they're also going to be like that was not okay and i know that's not in alignment with your own integrity and how are you going to fix it so beautiful and it's so much deeper than just the notion which is already deep but of unconditional love like i love you no matter what is like yeah but can you love someone no matter what and address the no matter what, like the stuff that's hard or that, you know, is not like you said, what you know is in alignment with who they want to be. Cause I think it's, yeah. it's easier to, for me at least to feel like I could love some people unconditionally, but to, and, and see, see them harming or see them not showing up for themselves yep. or whatever it is and just letting that go and being like, this is love. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's love with accountability. It's so love powerful. with discernment. Yeah. Um, oh and I think, and this is again, like I will say like black queer women are the ones who taught me about like love with discernment, love with accountability um, is uh, like in an, and like doing work that's not just thinking about like, oh, I was a jerk to my friend, but like talking about like sexual abuse, um, talking about domestic abuse, talking about violence, um, like black women have done so much work in in that area of like recognizing that systems that think of human beings as disposable are perpetuating violence in all of our communities so we actually need systems that that create like actual healing and accountability your your book party in quotes was such a moving and almost like a piece of art for me in relationship to this book. And I was wondering if we could end by like, I'll describe it a little bit, which is this Mia's um, partner invited a bunch of us who are from all different parts of her life. Some of whom known each other, a lot of whom don't and asked us, this is during, you know, COVID sheltering in to come outside of Mia's home and all stand six feet apart, you know, in our masks and surprise her so that she would come out onto the porch and see all of us standing there on the day of her book release. And it, it's really hard to describe how totally moving it was for me to see all these people. There must have probably been like two dozen people or something like that standing in the middle of the street, all distance. So we were all kind of spread out in almost this beautiful formation and some of us had signs and stuff. My kid made a sign and other people had, you know, wine bottles and flowers and have Mia walk out onto the porch with, you know, a glass of wine. She thought she was just going to be like privately celebrating 
and then see like laid out in front of her this kaleidoscope of like her people or at least you know a fraction of them who are local enough to come just applauding her and and like celebrating her um it was like your book had like come to life in a certain sense looking around (laughs) I wondered like what was that like oh my god I'm tearing up right now just like hearing you talk about it um I mean it was it was it was it was my book coming to life it was um you know it's one of those things that that lets you know how deeply loved you are and how like honored you are and how seen you are you know so much of writing a book even you know a book where like I talked to a ton of people and like talked about it like a lot of it is a very solitary thing and then you know like it's there's all of the like ego stuff about putting something out into the world and um how people are going to respond to it um and there was something about that moment that reminded me like how much not how much work I've done, but like how much work we've done, like all of the people that I'm in relationship with um, to see each other and to um, know each other and to just like be in deep relationship with each other. Um, it was one of the most beautiful things that like I ever experienced and also completely unexpected. <laughs> completely unexpected it also occurs to me it's exactly the manifestation of intentionality where like we knew to be six feet apart we knew to have our masks we knew we weren't hanging out and like you know being um loosey-goosey with all the sheltering and stuff it was like we came with an intention you know nino had communicated it very clearly we honored you we saw you and we left in this way that's actually kind of what the whole book's about which is just like expectations (laughs) and creativity yes resilience and so anyway, it was just such a beautiful moment. And I'm so grateful to have been a part of it. It was amazing. There's something too about, I think like, especially in this moment where I, I think so many of us feel um, like untethered by the uncertainty of like having a pandemic that's going to be around for who knows how long, um, the economic impact of it, like on top of like this cycle of white violence and then just like the the daily experience of being separated from each other, um, there was something about that that was this beautiful reminder of like when we do know each other and when we kind of like reach out to like feel our way toward our inherent connection with each other, um, that we figure out how to navigate through hardship and through things that feel like they are creating barriers. Um, for our connectedness. And I think part of it was just like, our connectedness is just like inherent and it can't be severed. Um, We really just have to figure out how to see it in new ways. Perfectly said. This book is such a gift. You are such a gift. Thank you, my friend. Thank you, my dear. Mia Birdsong wrote the book, How We Show Up, Reclaiming Family, Friendship, and Community, which was released July 2nd. Courtney Martin is the author of The New Better Off, Reinventing the American Dream. Their discussion was held earlier this month for Aspen Ideas Now, a digital conversation series from the Aspen Institute. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go wherever you listen to podcasts. 
Follow Aspen Ideas year-round on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Aspen Ideas. Listen on our website, aspenideas.org, and sign up for our newsletter. Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenin and me. Our music is by Wonderly. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for joining me.